Hey there, Recovery Nation, producer John here. In this episode of Full Potential Now, Ted speaks with Dr. Stephanie Steinman, assistant professor and psychologist at UW-Madison. Dr. Simon shares some excellent knowledge on mindfulness, relapse prevention, and coping with the coronavirus. Don't go anywhere. Mindfulness-based interventions are an increasingly utilized approach for addressing behavioral health and substance use problems. Mindfulness primarily comes from the Buddhist theory and could be defined as simply a purposeful attention to the present moment with an openness to accepting things as they are and not as we want them to be. For example, people who are struggling with anxiety may foster mindfulness to identify, acknowledge, and ultimately disengage from the negative thoughts connected to their anxiety. Mindfulness-based relapse prevention, also known as MBRP, is a recently developed mindfulness intervention specifically for substance use that utilizes both traditional psychotherapeutic relapse prevention techniques and mindfulness-based meditation practices. The addition of mindfulness meditation to traditional relapse prevention techniques has been found to be successful in reducing substance relapses and the psychological discomfort that often leads to a relapse. Mindfulness has also been found effective in reducing anxiety and depression symptoms. So what would happen if a woman discovered the benefits of mindfulness at a young age and then decided to pay it forward to others? So I first got interested in being a psychologist in seventh grade, actually. Um, My dad's two best friends were psychologists, uh, and my uncle was a school counselor. Um, And so these were people that I really just looked up to. Um, And then this kind of work uh, just really fits in with my strengths. I love talking with and connecting with people. Um, And my, my brain just analyzes things a lot. And so it's like this, again, this dream job for me that I'm able to sit and talk with people and try to help figure out um, what is going to help them in order to get the kind of life that they want to have. Uh, I um, had some anxiety in high school. And so my mom uh, introduced me to yoga when I was 18, because I'm pretty sure she thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown when I went to college. Really? You, um, you do not. I've known you for years, man. You you hide it well. It's because I discovered yoga at age 18. Wow. I have now been doing meditation um, for 22 years. Like, this has changed my life. Um, and so I finally got my yoga teacher certification last year. Um, like, mindfulness is just a daily part of, of me and what I do. Um, and I want to share with the world. Um, I recognize, like, These skills aren't helpful for all people all of the time, um, but all of these kind of skills have been helpful for some people some of the time. And so if I can be a part of sharing that, that's what I want to do. Man, I just love, that is so absolutely sweet, the fact that you would, you you sort of like lived a piece of this yourself. So like, you know, there's some therapists who might come from the standpoint, they've never really gone through a hard time, that sort of thing. And their therapists, they still do a good job, but I, I'm, I really like the fact that you've really gone through some shit and had to deal yeah. with it. And here you are 22 years later saying, wait a second, I'm not only out there helping people, but I've lived a piece of this myself and I can see the benefits of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then with the addiction piece specifically, uh, I mean, I've always just been drawn to um, talking with and working with people where other people are like, I don't want to do that. I can't touch that. Um, and so I've done work uh, in the HIV AIDS clinic with hospice um, and then addictions. And so bringing mindfulness to those kind of populations and seeing the change that has been able to happen for them over time, um, finally able to grow into the people who they always have been, but it has been so covered up by other things. Yeah, I, I think we are come from the same philosophy because I always, all the people I've worked with, you know, so often, you know, they see themselves as damaged, as like they've had this life, it's going to run its, it's going to run its course. Like I have no right. hope. And yet you can almost right. begin to see that there's always that true always. person inside. 
and they yeah. just maybe haven't had the environment and the genetics to set them up. But you just like, I always have this hope, like, oh, we can pull this person, this person could just like become themselves, like what they were really meant to become. Right. And, yeah, and help exactly. Them out so back to mindfulness-based relapse prevention, I mean, this is what um, the research is starting to show is that it does increase compassion. People are really able to finally put things in perspective and understand the choices that they've made and have compassion around that um, instead of all of the shame and guilt and judgment that is so often present. So is that a key component of mindfulness? Is this that, because I think people always have this critical voice, this critical eye in themselves, and it's that judging, the judgment part of it. Could you say a little bit more about that and how to get over that? Yeah. Again, this was part of my dissertation that I didn't get to prove, um, but that I was trying to unpack what are the key components and what are actually the reasons why mindfulness works. Um, and so compassion was one of my hypotheses. Um, decreasing rumination, that voice inside your head that just keeps spinning um, and goes over and over and over and can't stop. Um, and again, mindfulness helps take that out because it just brings it to this present moment. Um, and then increasing that cognitive and behavior flexibility um, so that I can have more than one thought about a thing, that I can act in more than one way. Um, it's not just this happens and then automatically I'm doing this. We have a lot of choices. I love that you just said that end part because I find myself and just working with other people, the black and white thinking, you begin, you, you have this rigid judgment about it either has to be this way or that way. And there's so much stuff in the middle. Exactly. Flexible. I know. Like saying, does it necessarily, does it mean it's like totally shattered? I'm always going to be like this. Well, no, it doesn't mean that you can find tons of evidence why that's not true, but we kind of get locked into this like either or black and white way we see things. And I think that really helped you. I mean, you could feel free to debate me on this or add some disagreement, but I really feel like that fuels the judgment when we categorize things like that, it almost causes us to be a judger. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So our brains are so good at that black and white thinking because it's easier. It's the shortcut. It's yes or no. It's right or wrong. Um, and so then people know where they stand. Um, but reality is almost never that. There are so many areas of gray. There are so different um, options for people to engage in. There is almost never one right answer of what to do. And it seems like even like if we get back to panic attacks, like I know a lot of people that struggle with those, they fear them that they're going to have more. But the important thing to remember is even if you've had like a lot of them, you've gotten through all those. You've gotten through all of them, right? And that's and you're still why standing. I talk about Exactly. And that's why I talk about, I want you to have tools so you know what to do when it starts. As soon as we start trying to stop something from happening, our brain thinks about it all of the time. Um, and it's more important for our brains to say, I know what I'm going to do when that is there. Oh, so really switching the, maybe switching this idea of fearing the panic attack and having that tape going in your head to what am I, what can I do? What's going to be my plan? Exactly. You want to have agency over what you can do. Yeah, that's a real empowering approach versus you're at the whim of, all right, I just had increased anxiety. Now I'm fearing it more. Now I'm fearing it more. Now I'm fearing it even more. When in fact, it's like, all right, if it comes, it comes. I've gotten through a hundred of these. This is yeah. my plan. Yeah, exactly. Dying I'm not going to die. Panic attack. You're dropping wisdom. I can't dropping believe it, man. This is like the gold nuggets coming out. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, so what is, so any other thoughts on like a, maybe a success story with addiction, like where you work with somebody and they were, maybe you picked them up in the mind, mindfulness relapse prevention group or any other stories that might pop in your mind. I mean, obviously you can't identify the person, but just the general success story of what could be. Cause I always think like we always get so, um, focused in on our past looking back yeah. And saying like, oh, this is screwed up. It's always going to be this way. And we don't spend enough time not just looking at the future, but saying, what could a successful future look like? Yeah, I mean, I um, just had such a privilege of being able to run a mindfulness-based relapse prevention group where I saw people from all walks of life. And it's incredible how 
I have all these mindfulness tools and been using it for so long, like I would still have those automatic thoughts um, and judgments of people that would arise of this person is just sitting there. They're not engaging at all. Uh, I remember this one guy that was a construction worker who would like sit on the floor in his jeans and just look so uncomfortable. And I was like, Ugh, I feel so terrible. Like I'm trying to teach him yoga and meditation and breathing. Um, and uh, actually at the end of our eight week group, he came up to me and said, this, this changed my life. Like I never thought about these things before. Um, I thought therapy was a joke. Like I wasn't going to put anything into a, this. Um, but I have really listened these past eight weeks. Um, and I'm going to continue to use this forever. Um, and haven't drank now that, for eight weeks. That's incredible. So he really, what do you think happened for him? Do you think he got more in touch um, with himself or do you think? Yeah, I think that he was really able to develop a different with himself and again that like compassion and understanding um, that he gave to himself but also like to the group and trying something new and being able to go out of his comfort zone and having tools with which to do that um, and us talking explicitly about like no you're not supposed to sit here and be a Zen master and not think of anything else like you're supposed to sit with and notice whatever is present for you um, and then figure out what to do with that. Yeah. You know, I really think about this and I'm like, all the stories I've heard and through my own practices and working with people is that you always end up coming back to the things that work for you. And when you get yeah. somebody in touch with their body, maybe for the first time and who they are, there's, I, I've just seen it. You want to go back to that place. And if you're in a sort of like vessel that's helping you get there, I think that's some of the draw of mindfulness, why people keep coming back, is that it's a natural connection with yourself. And you want that. Right, right. It's, exactly. not, a, it's not a sell job. Like, all the, like there's a lot of other stuff out there that's all sell stuff. Like, you know, re, sort of like reinvent your personality in three days or less for right. $999. Well, it's like... It, Lose 10 pounds in 10 days. That exactly. Would make you happy. Just praise on people like that. But I, the reason I've always loved mindfulness, especially like DBT practices, is just that it, like you, it's, there's no selling. It's just like you, you're helping people get back in touch with themselves, and that in itself is the power. Right, exactly. I mean, I feel like America kind of started discovering this in the 70s. But this has been present with Eastern philosophies for over 2,500 years. Like, this has been around for a long time. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that just for our listeners? Just any history that you that comes to mind or? Yeah. So trace this back uh, a little bit. I know that John Kabat-Zinn was the one who introduced it more to Western medicine um, with mindfulness-based or mindfulness-based stress reduction courses. Uh, and that was specifically for patients who had chronic pain that the doctors didn't know what else to do with. Um, medication wasn't helping different kinds of, uh, physical treatment weren't helping. Um, and so John Kabat-Zinn really looked to Buddhism and the practices over there, um, and adopted it to be a secular practice, though, of how people can start to have a different relationship with, with pain, with their bodies, with their thoughts. Um, and, and people finally started feeling better. These people who were in chronic pain that had no life and couldn't leave their house um, because they were in such pain um, finally started to create a life for themselves again. So what if I wanted to create a new life for myself and actually do something about my pain or my anxiety or even my potential to relapse on a substance? Where would I start? I hope that everyone is able to find some connection in they, their lives that they feel as passionate that I do. And you love helping people, which like with this coronavirus thing going on right now, I mean, you are a valuable asset to our community. That's for sure. 
Yeah, thank you. I'm just so glad that I still get to serve a purpose during this time um, and that I can keep myself and my family and my patients safe by doing telehealth. Uh, so I'm able to either video or audio chat with all of my patients still. Um, I just did my first supervision with one of my residents by video chat. Um, we had a WebEx meeting with all of our clinical care team. Um, so I'm in a unique position where I can still work um, and do it from home. So a lot of, I'm thinking like a lot of people might be home. I mean, if you, you know, I was watching TV for about 20 minutes while I was riding my bike on my trainer and I had CNN on. Yeah. I mean, it contains a lot of great info about, you know, the coronavirus, but as I watched it for even like 20 minutes, I like had anxiety because they just went from story to story to story. It was like 50,000 people lose their jobs. You know, we have all these people in Italy. It's just, I mean, it's good information to have. And obviously we want to be doing the best practices. Um, but I felt myself anxious. So you know what I did? What did you do, Ted? Full potential, Ted. You know, I did. I turned, I turned CNN off. And I watched an old NBA game, and I found that much more relaxing. So I found like and that sounds so mindful. You were so intentional as to where your anxiety level was at, and you're like, I have a choice in this, and I'm gonna make a different choice right now. And I felt, and I actually felt better. So I felt like ten or fifteen minutes watching, you know, the screen below that like streams stuff, information, and then watching whatever they're talking about. They usually sum it up on the hour anyways. I felt like 10 or 15 minutes kept me informed. But I imagine myself, maybe somebody older, um, and you're just sitting home. If you get locked into watching that, like I couldn't even imagine like six or seven hours, I would probably have an anxiety attack. Yeah, and that's what the news organizations are already saying is panic attacks are going up. Um, and so with every patient, what I'm talking about right now is how can you be mindful about your consuming of news media at this time? That yes, there is a time and place to be informed, but like you said, that could take 15 or 20 minutes. Um, but then it's being very intentional about what do I need to do to take care of myself that's going to start to bring my anxiety level down. Um, and so watching TV mindfully is one option, um, but also doing other mindfulness exercises, which could be mindfully doing your dishes, mindfully taking a walk around your living room, um, or doing some actual mindfulness meditation. Yeah. So I hate, you know, I always got to put my guests on the spot, but... <laughs> But what I'm here for. I used to work with Stephanie too back in the day at UW Health. Back in the day, I've known you for a long we, time, Ted. We were grinding it out, man. We were seeing just zillions of clients make I, after patient. That that was that was a hard job. Yeah, it was like assembly line style, but I always knew if I walked and saw you, you always had a smile on your face. And and now this is like years later, and I'll be honest. Some of my colleagues have dropped out of the field because they just got burned out, but you still seem yeah. like you have that fire. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, again, I'm glad of the choices that I made, that I am able to have uh, more responsibility of um, what I want to be doing um, and stepping into more leadership roles than I was at before. But that was a real growing experience, I think, for all of us, uh, that we could start to figure out what we wanted to be doing. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to get back to this mindfulness. So, so you, so, so I know for our listeners, some of you out there probably understand mindfulness or DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, have been exposed to it. But I think a lot of you probably haven't. A lot of our listeners are newly in recovery. And so, is there a way to briefly describe, like you had said, like mindfully walking around your living room, mindfully watching TV, mindfully doing your dishes? If you could explain a little bit more about what that actually looks like, that would be super cool. Yeah, definitely. Usually when I explain this, I have a nice whiteboard at my disposal. So I'm going to just talk through what this is going to look like. Um, so right, I so hold on. Hold on. Yeah. So, so for our listeners, sit back in your seat. Now, if you're driving, obviously keep your eyes on the road. But yeah. for those of you who are sitting down, maybe imagine yourself in your mind having this whiteboard. Exactly. So on the whiteboard, I am going to draw a picture of the present um, because mindfulness is all about staying in the present moment. 
our brains are so good about time traveling. And so then I draw an arrow of it jumping to the future. We are so good about thinking of all the what ifs and what could happen and going to be. Um, and our brains are also really good about time traveling to the past and thinking about everything that happened before and why did I say that and why did I do that and what is he gonna think about me? Mindfulness takes us back to this moment right now we're doing it intentionally on purpose, and we're trying to bring that attitude of non-judgment. Brains also really good about judging and criticizing ourselves. Um, there is uh, some thought that there could be benefit from that, that if we put those judgment on, we'll be that better person. Um, but actually, the opposite is true. Um, if we think about bosses that we have had in the past, the boss that sits behind us and tells us everything that we're doing wrong makes us so much uh, more likely to make more mistakes. The boss that's there being supportive, encouraging, I'm excited about what we're doing, we're more able to grow. And so that's what I want for people to be able to realize is how can they start talking to themselves differently without that critical voice in their head. Very good. Very good. So like, for instance, let's say I'm going to like after this podcast, I'm going to go upstairs and let's say I wash the dishes. And actually yeah. the reason I'm going to wash the dishes is because my wife is going to be home tomorrow and she'll be like, you need to wash the dishes. Normally, I put them in the dishwasher, but for our example, I do wash some yeah. of the dishes because they don't all quite yeah. fit in there. And you know, you get those pots and pans, they got <laughs> stuff on the bottom, you got to scrub that stuff out. Right. And so, you should not be washing your knives in the dishwasher either. So, yeah, which I have, I'll confess, I have done that before. And my wife is like, Jill's like, Ted, you cannot be doing that. It's a terrible <laughs> idea. You're ruining the knives. Exactly. So if I'm, I'm imagining myself, so I'm upstairs washing these pots and pans, how do I do that mindfully? I mean, I normally like jam out to music and I'm like talking, yelling across the house at my son or daughter or something. <laughs> but that doesn't sound yeah. to be like very mindful. I'm like distracted. <laughs> so No, our brains are not actually very good about multitasking. I mean, there can be a place to wash dishes and listen to music. Um, but I think it's a good practice for us to step out of that automatic pilot of what we're doing all the time. This is how our brains form those new connections and our neurons can help maybe prevent dementia. Um, and so to mindfully wash the dishes, Ted, you're going to pull out that big pot. You're going to get the water warm and soapy and you're going to just be really present um, with what it feels like to wash the dishes. Notice what thoughts come up for you, notice what emotions are there, um, and notice those physical sensations of just washing the dishes. So if I start getting like lots of thoughts, like I'm thinking about my to-do list or what am I going to do tomorrow while I'm doing that, what is the best way to deal with like when my mind does drift away? That is an excellent time to say congratulations. You were just mindful. You noticed your mind drifted to the to-do list. And now you have the opportunity to take it back. That the anchor of your present awareness right now is that dish. You can bring it back again and again. I have so many people tell me they can't do mindfulness because they can't make their brain pay attention to just one thing in the moment. Um, that's not what mindfulness is about. Mindfulness is about paying attention to what ever is present. So if your mind wanders a hundred times and you're noticing that you are being mindful. Ah, so, so I know like sometimes like even myself or just other people I've worked with, with mindfulness, you can like get down on yourself. Like I'm doing it wrong. I just don't know how to do it because I just did what I just said. And what you're yeah. saying, I think is that you're actually doing it correct. It's really that simple act of pulling yourself back over. So your mind's going to drift. And then when it drifts, you just bring your attention back to whatever you're doing. And then and would I be doing it successfully on some level then? Yeah, exactly. That is the message that I want to get across to people is that every time you notice that you have drifted, you are being mindful because you're being of that present moment experience. Oh, very, very good. Very good. Thank you. So um, 
I'll have a chance when I go upstairs to actually try this out, kind of see how it I'm, works. I'm so excited to hear how your new dishwashing experience goes. I'll, I'll take a picture of me by the sink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Jill will be happy about it as well. And I'll send it to her. So she's like, oh my God, my, my husband is actually doing the dishes. I can't believe it. Look at him washing those knives in the sink. <laughs> I got to take a special photo of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so just, I, you know, I come back to this coronavirus thing and I'm actually very, I know we're going to talk about some other stuff for sure, like yeah. how um, mindfulness ties into recovery and relapse prevention, yeah. all that good stuff. But like, I actually am, was thinking today, like there must be like, I, like I feel bad for people who are struggling with anxiety disorders, like panic disorder, generalized anxiety yeah. disorder. And then they're trapped in the house seeing this kind of information. And like you had said, there's probably going to be an increase of people with increased panic disorders. If you have that, there's a good chance if you don't play it just the right way and really take care of yourself, you could end up having more of those. Right, exactly. Now, I heard this uh, current practice being called social chemotherapy. Um, that chemotherapy is something that is a, a treatment that is ultimately beneficial for us, but like does destroy us in some ways. Right. And so this social distancing that we're doing is, is harming us in some ways, even though it is for this greater good of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any practical advice for anybody who like, for instance, I mean, obviously you're probably doing a lot of telehealth now. But somebody yeah. who does struggle like with panic disorder and they're home and they're feeling kind of isolated, any like practical tips or advice that you might have for that person? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and so a couple of things, people have to decide when they're kind of in their danger crisis zone. If they're at that point of experiencing a panic attack um, or having really strong thoughts about engaging in some unskillful coping behaviors, um, that's going to be a time to actually use these DBT tip skills, they're called. So you were just talking about how can we kind of tip this? So it's the tip skills. So that stands for temperature, intense exercise, pace breathing, and progressive muscle relaxation. So temperature, it's this really weird thing, um, but if people can get a hold of ice or even a cold drink and hold it on the right side of their neck, at their vagus nerve, that pretty quickly will bring them down from this really heightened physiological um, intense state. Um, intense exercise, even if people do jumping jacks in their living room, if they're physically capable of doing that, um, really fast walk or sprints if they're able to get outside a little bit, that's them being able to take control of their heart rate instead of their heart rate and breathing taking control of them. Oh, so you're like almost like in some sense hijacking your heart rate. Exactly, right? Because uh, your body has been hijacked by the anxiety here right now. Yeah. Oh, that's good. And what were the last two? Yeah, the last two are paced breathing um, and progressive muscle relaxation. So the paced breathing, um, sometimes people will talk about uh, just really noticing their breath, noticing those spaces between the inhale and the exhale, and that you typically want your exhale to be longer than your inhale. Um, so for some people, counting can help with that, um, but you really want to, again, use those mindfulness practices of focusing on the breath in just that present moment. Um, the in-breath, pause, and the exhale. Okay. Hey, and the last yeah, say the last one. Yeah, the last one. The last one is progressive muscle relaxation. If you Google, you will have one million hits. Um, on YouTube, uh, there are videos that will lead you through it. The idea with that one um, is that you would tense up different parts of your body um, because the idea is your body can't feel anxious and relaxed at the same time. So we're actually forcing the body into that tension. Yeah. And so then that when you create the relaxation of breathing out and letting the muscles go, you really notice that difference between tension and relaxation. Well, thank you so much, man. That's like super helpful. Could you, would it yeah, be possible? At that crisis level, I do want to go to like 
actually after you're down in the crisis level, but maybe anxiety is still there, then this is a time. Um, it's so the opposite of what people think, um, but to actually drop into your body, that that is what mindfulness is about, is about being present with whatever is there. I know that I have definitely engaged in some behaviors of like distracting and trying not to be present in my body and mind the past few days. Twizzlers have definitely played a role in that. <laughs> um, binge watching Netflix was definitely there. Uh, and so those are short term things that our brain likes to do because it lights up that reward system. Um, but longer term doesn't actually make me feel any better. Uh, and so this is just a really simple meditation of if you can sit for even one minute and notice physical sensations that are present in your body, those are going to rise and fall much more quickly if we don't have that thought component feeding it, if we don't have the news on telling us what to think right now. So if we can just sit and say, I notice my heartbeat right now. I notice my hands being warm or cool. So would it be possible to take me through like, like maybe even like a minute of that breathing and then maybe a minute of that, you know, paying attention to our body sensations? Yeah, I would love to do that. Are you uh, ready? Yeah. You can time it out. Okay. Just kind of take us through a short one on the breathing. Yeah, let's do this. So get in a comfortable position. It can be helpful if both feet are on the floor and arms are by the side. That way you're not holding your muscles or tensing. Your eyes can be either gazing gently down or softly closed. And then I want you to bring your awareness to your breath. This might be the first time you paid attention to your breath today. And you don't need to try to change it in any way. Just be aware of the inhale and the exhale. And then see if there's a spot where you notice your breath. Do you notice it in your belly, in your nose? Maybe you can feel your lungs filling up with air and then releasing. And so now I'm gonna ask that you shift your awareness to a physical sensation in your body. So this might be some area where there is some holding or tension, maybe even some sensation of pain or pressure. And if your brain is having a hard time picking just one area, going ahead and selecting one and just staying with it for this moment. Seeing if you can be present with whatever sensation is there. Maybe putting some words on this experience. And maybe instead of pain, saying there's tightness there. There's some warmth. And if your mind wanders, again, congratulate yourself. This is an excellent opportunity to be mindful and bring your awareness back. Man, I'm ready. I am. I, I noticed like a physical difference. Were you already? Yeah, yeah I was and like. That, again, I was, was like maybe two minutes. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty scattered. And then, you know, I find it kind of hard to get focused because I had a couple sensations in my body and then I had to pick one. Actually yeah, focused in on my on. yeah, I focused in on my hands. So um I want to thank you for doing that. So I'm hoping maybe our You're listeners welcome. will try try this out while we were doing it. So that would be super cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you for providing me this opportunity to do it. Yeah, very cool. So um, anything else you want to say about the coronavirus and kind of like what you've been experiencing just with clients? Because I know telehealth is something a lot of people don't really know that that exists sometimes. Well, and a lot of times insurance companies weren't paying for it before, um, but I have been really by the response that I have seen and heard of, of insurance companies saying, now we are going to be covering this at 100%. Um, and so, I mean, ultimately, I'm really hopeful that something good will come out of all of this is we're going to be able to reach even more people, um, not with just mental health care, but with other kinds of uh, physical care as well, um, where people haven't been able to come into the office. Yeah. So this idea that that's what I was thinking, that even though this is such a huge, huge tragedy going on right now, that there's always like some glimmer of hope, some bright side to it. And that maybe this technology and everybody sort of being forced to use it on a massive scale will then allow us to reach later on, especially like with mental health and addiction work, people who can't make it to the office. Right, exactly. No, and I'm excited for all the books that are going to be written at this time, all the movies that are going to be written. That's right. Um, And I think there's going to be another baby boom. Like, people are stuck at home. That is true. (laughs) It'll be like that time. They'll, they'll like, line it up, like, nine or ten months from now. Nine or ten months from now. This is what we're going to see. Yeah, yeah. I love Um, that. With people being at home more, um, I mean, again, just the response that I've seen, I'm so glad that people are aware um, that we need to do this not only um, for ourselves, but because of our social responsibility to others. Um, But it is so important that we still stay engaged in some way physically and mentally. Um, So still doing things. If you can take a walk safely um, around where you live, uh, exercise videos, um, yoga videos. um, And then, uh, again, still like that mental kind of uh, engagement of making sure you're staying connected with people via video chat, doing puzzles, reading books. Um, engaging in some kind of hobby that you've always wanted to do, but said you have no time to do, this is the time. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I chimed into was because my little guy Samuel's home and we're having a homeschool him. So that's kind of stressful on parents' parts, me included. But what I figured was we ended up getting this dry erase board and then we just basically like organized the whole day. So we have some structure to it. And I know some people have been really talking about like the idea of like maintaining a routine. Because if you're not in a routine, I think, at least what I think is that you make it more likely that you could fall into some serious ruts. Right, exactly. We need, our brains really like to know what's coming. And so still having that schedule, I'm encouraging people maintain some kind of consistent sleep schedule as well. We know how important that is for our mental and emotional health. Um, but I've been hearing people, right. It's so easy to not go to bed at the regular times yeah. anymore. You have to wake up. Yeah. Yeah. I've been fighting even getting him up. So he gets up around nine now and he usually got yeah. up at seven. So we've already slipped into that. So I'm going to yeah. try to like bring it back a little each day. Yeah. Well, what about, um, let's get into addiction and actually a quick side note with this coronavirus is. You know, I've gotten some notices from a lot of AA and NA clubhouses that they're shutting it down. So I'm like thinking, yeah. which makes sense to me, but then I'm like thinking, yeah. man, if, I mean, it's bad, it's bad enough you're isolated and maybe you, you don't have an addiction issue, but now you're throwing right. an addiction issue. If you're newly in recovery, you're depending on that support. Um, what's your thoughts on that and kind of what best, you know, what somebody could do? Yeah, so um, I know the online community is really big, um, and so they're putting even more calls out there for maybe people who haven't done the online thing before. Um, if your clubhouse is shut down, to check that out as an option. Uh, I'm concerned about people with the methadone clinics um, because those are getting shut down where people are getting their full dose for the entire month. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping that providers will step up and other options will become available, um, like pharmacies of being able to dispense it, um, or if Suboxone is available for people, uh, which
which is something that can be managed more on a daily basis than like methadone where they have to go in. Yeah, it would make sense that hopefully the pharmacies will get involved because that would be the logical connection that they would just go to pharmacy to get that daily dose rather than having to stockpile. I mean, if you're addicted and you get a 30-day supply of methadone, <laughs> exactly. I mean, you're almost yeah. setting somebody up to relapse. Yes. Yep. If not, sell half of it off and then relapse. So right. Knows, yeah. Right. Exactly. Which money is a huge stressor for people right now. Um, there's just a lot of triggers present. Well, let's, uh, if we could, let's get into, because you've done some relapse prevention groups using mindfulness. Yeah, so this is what my dissertation was on. Um, it's really kind of the colliding of my two passions, um, addiction and mindfulness. Uh, and I was so interested as how the two would go together. Um, because for people with addiction and substance use disorders, it seems like they're trying so hard to take themselves out of the present moment. Um, and then I'm teaching them mindfulness skills that is all about teaching them how to be in the present moment. Um, and so some of this is just my hypothesis. Uh, like I kind of believe that they didn't learn ways to actually be present with themselves and what is happening right now. Um, and addiction was one way that their brains learned of, I don't have to feel what I'm feeling right now. I can feel this other way. Um, but mindfulness can teach them how they can be present with whatever feeling is there um, without having to change it in that very moment. So the idea here, because this is talked about a lot, I've seen this over the years in the field, and generally people will have this general conclusion, I think, is that people are like numbing out. That's why they use alcohol yeah. and drugs, they want to numb out. But I think there's a bit, like what you're talking about is a bit of a deep, deeper dive into it, saying, defining more what numbing out is. Well, numbing out is actually maybe almost somewhat not being mindful. Right, exactly. Um, I mean, help me again, out, I, I could be off, but... Yeah, you can clarify. No. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't think it necessarily comes naturally for our our brains um, to deal with problems. And then especially if people learn during their adolescent years, I have a problem. I can take this drug and feel differently. Like, why would their brain want to do anything else? Uh, and so for me, this is a place where they need more tools and how to deal with it for people that say, Oh, I can't treat drug addictions, right? Like they're just going to keep using like, that's not true. That's not what the data shows. Um, when we give people these tools, uh, relapse rates, down. this was the problem with my dissertation. Actually, it was the best problem to have. I didn't have enough people relapse in my mindfulness-based relapse prevention group um, in order to run the statistical analyses that I wanted to. Oh, really? Um, like to be statistically significant. Exactly, which is pretty incredible because that means like only two people out of the 60 who were in the group relapsed. Oh, really? So you had those kind of findings. That's yeah. a, That's actually extraordinary. Two out of 60? Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty incredible. Wow. So do you think, you know, I always think about the brain research and obviously we know that earlier initiations, like especially before eighth grade, you increase the likelihood that you can develop an alcohol or drug addiction. But it almost like, as I kind of like sort of freeform this thought here, it almost would seem that the earlier you use, the more you sort of hardwire your brain in some sort of way to sort of like deal with things neurologically through substances. And then when we think yeah. about mindfulness's impact on sort of like neurology and in the body, um, I like your idea that maybe people have never been in, especially like when I think about like people, like we know there's a high incidence of trauma or abuse with people who develop addictions. You begin yeah. to piece it together. You say, well, that sort of messes with the brain in a certain kind of way as yeah. well. Then you transfer it into an addiction. Then you never maybe have ever been able to be mindful. Right, exactly. And the amazing thing about our brain is that like it isn't hardwired, right? Like yeah. neurons wire together, wire together. So yes, those connections get really strong. But the incredible thing about psychotherapy and mindfulness is that it can rewire the brain. So you don't even need any medication. Some people definitely need that. Follow up with your doctor. Um, but we can change our brain 
by thinking differently, by behaving differently, and by engaging in meditation. So even if you've never done it before, mindfulness, and maybe you were not graced with this ability to do it when you were younger, that you right. could actually start today. You could and, start anytime, but right now is the best time. Yeah. And I like that phrase. What is it? Neurons that fire together, wire together. Fire yeah. <laughs> you got to get a t-shirt, man. I would love that idea. That would be a great t-shirt. Yeah. No. I mean, the incredible thing is um, I had a friend who did a study on mindfulness of college students where they just came in once a week for eight weeks. Their immune system functioning got better just from doing that. Like, that's amazing. Like, it's what your body actually really needs. Yes. And so it really yeah. actually More really... Yeah, so then it really even makes more sense, even with this coronavirus, you know, all the stress involved with that, that you want to bring your stress level down because, you know, if you lift it up, it makes if you have mental health issues, you're more liable to have like those exasperated or increased. Um, and then like when we deal with addiction, if you get your stress level too high, it maybe makes it a little bit easier to reach yeah. out and relapse. Right. You're in a much more vulnerable state at that time. And all of us are in a much more vulnerable state um, because of the fear level that is present now. Yeah. Uh, a lot of which is, is really real. Well, anything else that you want to say in terms of helpful resources for our listeners, if you're in recovery? Um, I think one of the things actually that comes to my mind is how do you find if you if this appeals to you, maybe you even did a little bit of the exercise earlier and you're like, hey, I want to explore this a little bit with my recovery. How do you find like a good mindfulness, like recovery specialist or relapse prevention yep. specialist? So, uh, MindfulRP.com um, has a whole list of different providers that have gone through the mindfulness-based relapse prevention training. Um, and so you could see if any of those are available via telehealth as well. Um, if you're more just interested in different kind of apps started that would have a lot longer and a lot more of uh, kind of the breathing and body exercises, um, Headspace and Calm are two great apps. Okay, so Headspace and Calm. I've been on the Calm app. I actually uh, demo that for a lot of my students that I teach as well. Yeah, yeah. so you're and, already from there. And, and college, yeah, college kids, it's amazing when they haven't been exposed to it. They have a natural propensity to actually like this stuff. Yeah, I teach a mindfulness class now um, for kids ages 9 to 12. Uh, and it's always incredible to me. Like, I like the more active kind of mindfulness exercises. Um, but they get so drawn to those silent ones of just they, being present with their bodies. So most people, so you kind of think of like, I think mindfulness gets a bad rap sometimes because some people think of it as it's Buddhism. We're going to sit around in a circle and we're going to chant. I'm going to have to go in like a cross-legged yoga pose the whole time. I mean, there's just like these myths out there. And so yeah. if you could add just a little bit about this nine to 12 year old group, because this is like an active group. And most people are like, well, how do you do mindfulness with them? I've tried to teach my kid to settle down and I just have no luck. So there's this thing about active mindfulness, which I think is like, yeah. especially with this age group, it can be so beneficial. And if they learn it at this age, it could really help them. So if you Exactly. Could, You're yeah. changing the way their brains are wired now. Um, and so there's a great book called Moody Cow Meditates that is for kids that talks people through how to make a mind jar for their kids and talks about how when you put uh, glitter into a jar and fill it up with water, when you you can see like that's how our brains work when they get excited or mad or frustrated about something um, and that if we can just sit and watch that settle down that can happen to our thoughts as well um, but I do walking running meditation with the kids um, we do different kinds of art activities together and we make worry stones together um, we do different kind of mindfulness games that we play together um, where we have a line that everybody has to cross uh, in lots of different fun ways um, when we talk about this is what stresses me out does it stress you out too um, and so kids learn they're not alone and the, they're not the only ones feeling different kinds of stress could you give us one real quick exercise so if there's a parent listening out there 
They could be in recovery, not in recovery, but they're like, oh, I want to start somewhere with this mindfulness with my young one. What would be like a really simple thing they could try? Um, so the favorite one that my kids like is chocolate breathing. Chocolate so. breathing. I already like that. Chocolate. <laughs> so you have to get a piece of chocolate, but it has to be in a wrapper. Um, cause you're going to lay down with the dough. You're each going to have your own chocolate and you're going to put your chocolate on your belly for three breaths, only three breaths. And then you get to decide you're going to be intentional and mindful at this point. Do you want to eat that chocolate right now? Or do you want to try to balance the chocolate on your nose? Do you want to balance it on your forehead? Do you want to put it on this your is, lips and notice how you start because of the chocolate? And what this teaches kids and parents is that even though there's something we really, really want, we really want that piece of chocolate, we were able to take that three breath pause. Well, that is incredible. I love this. I'm going to actually try this tonight. With my yeah. kids. <laughs> I love it. The so chocolate breathing. Of, oh, I just had to do it. I didn't even think. There wasn't even any yeah. pause. Like, can put that pause in there with anything. Well, I'd be an awful person if, like, I only can take two breaths, and, but I have to eat the chocolate. <laughs> You'd be like, Ted, you <laughs> need to go to a mindfulness it, class. <laughs> yeah. See, no judgment. No judgment. <laughs> So that means I could eat my my kids' chocolate too. Then <laughs> your kids might have some judgment about that. Uh, well, is there any advice that you would have for somebody? Just say, I mean, you've had such an incredible career already, but just in terms of somebody thinking about getting into alcohol or drug treatment or getting started in some way, like there could be somebody listening out here, and I've had some emails come back to me. Um, a couple of people actually out on the West Coast said, "Hey, Ted." I'm trying to get the residential treatment. I'm going to, I've been accepted residential treatment on Monday. It's Friday. How do I get through the weekend? No. Yeah. But is there any initial thoughts you would have? Um, I mean, things like that can be so challenging. And that's when, when we were talking back about that schedule that we all need right now, they are going to need that in that moment of who am I going to talk to now? What meeting can I go to next? Um, this is going to be my nap time, but it's only going to be this long. This is going to be my eating schedule, um, and really having that structure. So then there's not even an option of downtime, uh, cause that can be so triggering for people. Yeah. So having lots um, of structure is good. What has been a bright moment for you this year, professionally, personally, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, a bright moment is just this past year, I started going out on the road um, and doing teaching to other therapists. Uh, so for me, this is just making that ripple effect even bigger. Um, and so it's not only my patients that I am able to give these tools to, um, it's now these whole groups of therapists that can each touch all of their own patients um, and give them these tools. Uh, and so it's just such a wider impact for me. Um, and that's been really important to me. So what have you been training on? I, I was hoping to go to Portland, Maine in July um, and do a training for therapists there. Ted, things are really up in the air right now. We don't and know where we're going to be at. And I wish we would have introed with this, but you're a Seattle, Seattle person, aren't you? I am a Seattle person. I was out there doing um, work with adolescents in a residential treatment facility, both uh, addictions and health disorders. Um, and that's where I really started bringing in these mindfulness skills uh, and seeing these teenagers who hated everything, like start to do meditation was incredible. Yeah. And you worked with, you've worked with teens like throughout, it kind of, our, our careers have probably paralleled each other. Like you probably work with a lot of all the girls, all the teen girls and everybody would send yeah. all the teen boys to me. Um, True. And, and I, to be honest with you, and I don't know if you share the same perspective, some therapists can work with teens and some can't. Uh, yeah, I would agree. Some therapists, like, recognize I Like, I, I can't, can't deal with these yeah. kids. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's the different personality to work with them, right? You have to meet them where they're at. If you start talking down to them, like, they pick that up right away and they're not going to talk to you. Yeah, it makes me think of, I worked, at, I ran this uh, crisis unit, which is a residential short-term unit. And 
adolescents, man, they can, they will, if you have issues, yeah, they will, they find, they will find those issues within weeks and you'll have to deal with those or you'll be sort of like thrown to the sharks. Correct. Correct. <laughs> They're really good about finding out what your buttons are oh, and then they, pushing them. They totally yeah. do. And then they want to see what you're going to do with that because it's a test, right? Like yeah. they push your buttons and you will still accept me. Yeah. Yeah. That's really what it's about. But it's a tough, like, we can say that now, but when you're going through it, it's it's actually an awful experience. I know. When we had uh, meal times, they had to say what they were grateful for. They would name every other person around the table other than me. <laughs> I we, had stop, we had to stop saying you can't name anybody's names of what you're grateful for. They just look for that audience and then whammo. Oh, yeah. you're bringing yeah. me back. But I mean, I saw a lot of kids make amazing, you know, even, even though they gave me headaches at, at times in that unit, I learned a lot about myself. And then you kind of, as you get to know them, you find out like why they are the way they are. It may, it's exactly. sort of like makes sense. Yeah. And then you start treating them a little bit different and oftentimes right. they respond differently to that. Right. Completely. I mean, and so many times like parents haven't gotten any parenting skills. They don't know what to do. Yeah. Like they were thrown into this as well. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think that family work is so important is getting the parents to be able to figure out how they can talk with their kids. Can I ask your opinion on this? Yeah. You should probably say, Ted, what's the question first, but it's been, so I've been consulting with a lot of agencies over the last probably five years. And even though family therapy is like, even in like recovery with adults is like strongly recommended family and couples therapy is evidence-based practice, best practices, yeah. et cetera. What I find out is oftentimes a lot of agencies just aren't doing it due to logistics. Yeah. Because, um, for most of our people, uh, family and couples therapy is not covered by insurance. Um, I don't know how much I want to advertise this. I do work in a clinic that for the patients in the clinic, we have a training clinic where they offer um, family and couple therapy. Yeah. yeah, let's just roll right into that. So, um, you know, if somebody wants to get hold of you or contact you or maybe is interested in talking more, would you be willing to share kind of like whatever your contact information is like on a professional level? Um, yeah, I'm happy to answer professional questions and this is where it just becomes an insurance issue for people yeah. in terms of who can be treated. Um, but if you want to post my email address, I'm happy to have that put out there. Excellent. And then you're really based here in Madison, Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. I'm unfortunately not offering telehealth to the world yet until right. they <laughs> approval for that, but maybe someday. Yes. All right. Well, are you ready for the speed round? I'm ready for the speed round. We're wrapping. We're down the home stretch here. So, you know, just in like 30 seconds or less. I mean, obviously, I won't hold you to it. You can do it. What is one of your biggest insights in the field of addiction or mental health treatment? That our brains can be rewired. No matter what your age, right? No matter what your age, no matter what you have done to your brain, we can rewire your brain. Nice. So there's always hope. Yes. Now, I always love this question. I've been asking some of my other guests because um, it goes back to your trials and tribulations along your clinical journey. But if you could have learned something earlier in your career as a therapist, what would have that been? Um, that I am not the one to fix people. Uh, that I can give people the tools, but it's, it's them figuring out again, what they want their life to look like. Um, and that I can help show them the path, but it's not me coming in and being the fixer. So you went through that painful path as well. Sure. Someone, did, right? I, I confess it. It's almost like, I think it happened to me about three or four years out in the field where, you know, the first session, the first year, you kind of don't really know what you're doing. And, and then you're just trying to not, like not harm anybody. And then you get some information. You sort of get your mojo a little bit. And then you go to some continuing ad. You know, you're helping people. You're feeling good about yourself. And then almost like almost I went through this little period where I thought like I almost knew more than they did. Like, yeah. I knew better than them. And then, you know, pretty right. much if like. If they would just do things, <laughs> then it would get better. Yeah. If they'd only do what I say, everything would be fine. Right. And then yeah. a good 
clunk over the head, a good dose of humility. And then now, strangely enough, I don't know if this has happened to you, but like I've been out in the field for like 20 some years and I find that I'm almost listening like I did the first year. And then yeah. I, just as a supervisor, I, you know, like I, I'll ride shotgun in a lot of sessions, you know, with the people I supervise, you yeah. know, their toughest clients. I'm like, all right, I'll jump in on that session with you and we'll kind of see how it goes. But um, and oftentimes these younger therapists will ask me, they'll be like, well, Ted, what's your headset coming in there? What are you thinking? And, you know, probably like 15 years ago, I would have said, well, I'm thinking blah, 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 right. blah, 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 right. blah. Yeah. And now I'm like, really, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen. We, we have to talk to the clients first. Like, I, I have no idea. They could show up with somebody else and I have no idea. <laughs> like, really? I'm like, yeah, yeah. you just got to base it on where that person's at. Who knows? Exactly. No, mindfulness calls it beginner's mind, right? Like, can we go back to that state of when we were first seeing things for the very first time? Because that's true. With every patient, that's the first time you're seeing them in that moment. Yeah. And then I find the better listener, like, I'm as I really have tuned in, like, I don't really move forward with a lot of stuff until I really get people and understand right. them. Yeah. Yep. And it's so much about the listening for me now. When I find myself being like, what am I going to say next? That's actually this cue for me to sit back. Yeah, not say and anything. And not say anything. Very good. So what is your favorite type of music? I'm going to skip ahead. Um, I have gone back to like early indie rock. Like I think it's such a nostalgia thing for me right now. And like I think we all need a little bit of dose of nostalgia right now of like yeah. what is that? Thing that makes you happy and like brings you back to like some of those moments um, where you were just like feeling joy and excited. And so going back to like my early college rebel days, indie music. What years are we talking there? Um, uh, probably ninety, late nineties, early two thousands. So you, were you in Seattle when the Seattle scene erupted? Um, I got there right after that. Oh, so. so the the so what was it like in Seattle after, you know, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and it kind of run its course. Still, here everybody went out every weekend and saw a show in like one of these little dive clubs. Um, but the Seattle freeze is also real. Like I was from the Midwest originally. Um, where everybody is friendly and smiles and talks to you. And so going out to the Pacific Northwest where nobody looks at you or talks to you, like was a huge culture shift for me. Are you kidding me? So you'd go see a band and it wouldn't be very friendly? No, no. Google Seattle freeze. Like it is a real thing that still happens out there. So if you move from the Midwest, like be prepared. Is it, is it almost like you're not one of us kind of thing? is you're not one of us we have too many people out here already we want to protect like our little area of the world um <laughs> that's good to know though yeah all right what's your favorite type of meat or favorite type of food and why um so right now my favorite food is my mom makes this triple layer perfect chocolate cake Every year for my birthday, I was supposed to see her on Saturday oh. for her to make me the cake, and now I can't see her. Oh, um, and so my 10-year-old son stepped up and made me a cake for my birthday, um, and it was amazing. Nice, nice. I actually like that idea. I should almost adopt that, this idea of making your kid a certain cake, their favorite cake or pie. Yeah. Every birthday, like make it a tradition of some sort. Yeah. No, you get your birthday meal. Mine is pork chops and applesauce. Yeah. And then your cake. Nice. Um, if you could be a musician or act or actress, who would you be and why? Uh, so I thought about this. I I would be my ten year old son. Like he is just so infinitely cooler than I was at his age. He plays. <laughs> The ukulele and the viola um, and is doing theater. Uh, and like, I'm just amazed. Like he will get up there and perform and, and totally own it. Uh, and it's just amazing to see his brain grow in all these ways already. Oh, that's going to be awesome to see. Yeah. 
Well, very cool, Stephanie. Um, well, we want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, thank you, Ted. Well, Sharon, I mean, you dropped just tons of value bombs, I think. Like, these are like gold nuggets for people even struggling out there now during yeah, this whole coronavirus. Yeah, well, and, and if you're struggling with an addiction as well, I mean, these, this is, these are some good tools and just things you can learn and, and work at. Yep, I feel like um, we all have the responsibility of taking a look at what we can do right now. And so that's why I'm so honored that you provided me this opportunity that I could come on and share these tools so we can pass them out to other people um, at this time of really great need. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on, Stephanie. Thanks, Ted. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you so much to Dr. Stephanie Steinman for sharing her time with us. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode featured music by me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.